Hi, I'm Eric Nee, Managing Editor of Stanford Social Innovation Review, which aims to inform and inspire leaders of social change. Learn more at SSIR.org. Building successful networks isn't just about pairing organizations with similar missions. It's also about human relationships. In this talk, conservationist Steve McCormick looks at several common barriers to developing strong relationships and ways to overcome them. Thank you very much, Eric. Uh, I, uh, I shared with Eric when I arrived this morning that many years ago I gave a talk on this campus. Um, I can't remember what the event was. And somehow the MC um, switched intros. And so I, <laughs> I was introduced with a completely different biography, which in many ways was a lot more impressive than mine. Um, but it's fun. Every time I return to Stanford, I kind of think, well, is that because I went to Berkeley and they're kind of trying to uh, mess with me? In any event, I'm really delighted to be here um, with you all and to talk about something that um, has been a very uh, significant uh, challenge for me, frankly. And Eric <laughs> very generously um, sort of intimated that I have had a lot of experience of this and figured it out in some I have not. Um, this is something that takes a lot of effort and time to master. Um, just so I can get a little bit of sense of the composition of the room. How many of you work for organizations that have a hundred or more employees. Well, it's quite a few. Um, how many of you work for organizations that have 10 or fewer employees? Okay. How many of you are with uh, funders, either foundations or, well, more than I would have thought. Um, why are all the funders on this side of the room? <laughs> Get over there. <laughs> um, and how many of you have been either in your field or in the not-for-profit sector for 10 or more years? Whoa, almost all of you. Okay, 25 or more years. All right, quite a few. You, you should all be giving uh, the presentation. Um, uh, you know, I'll start with stating the obvious. Trying to create networks or work within networks, or partnerships, coalitions, collaborations, however you want to, um, to term them, is exceedingly difficult. Um, and yet, I don't think there's ever been a time when there is a greater need for aligned effort in some fashion. And let me, let me share with you uh, some findings that came from an undertaking that we launched at the independent sector. I'm on the board of independent sector. It was created by John Gardner almost 40 years ago to create something of a, a hub or a center for a very distributed and, and not particularly linked community, the not-for-profit community. Uh, and three, four years ago, the then CEO of independent sector suggested we do a strategic plan and asked if I would lead that process. And I said no. Um, but I've been through so many strategic planning processes where we go through a lot of analysis and we come up with a plan and then frankly within three months external and sometimes internal influences push us away from the plan. I said, yeah, I, I, candidly, I'm not sure that independent sector is as relevant today as it was when it was started by John Gardner 40 years ago. 
What I would be up to is doing a refounding of independent sector, kind of go back to first principles as articulated by John Gardner, um, and see how we could position uh, independent sector to be relevant for the not-for-profit community in the future. And I wanted to make sure that on the table was the option that we would actually dissolve, because we couldn't, we couldn't find a way to be really relevant. There was no sense staying in existence. Uh, and so to start that process, we engaged a very fine team from the Monitor Institute, led by Catherine Fulton, who I'm sure many of you know or have heard of. And we wanted to get a yeah, kind of a sense of not so much trends, but you know, like, are there signals out there that we should be mindful of as we're trying to reposition it, our own organization? <clears throat> and also, we could share that with the larger community. And let me, let me, I, I, I'm going to share some of these with you. Um, the, the, they're not terribly surprising, but in a way, they do reinforce the notion of how important it is to work in community today. Uh, first finding, no surprise, there are, this, is, this came out uh, about a year and a half ago. <clears throat> there are critical uncertainties about the capacity of revenue-constrained governments. Um, we could even say that it's not just revenue that is constraining governments, but the, the underlying point here is government is not playing the role that it played even 30, 40, or certainly 50 more years ago in addressing social issues. Second uh, finding, there's a landscape of profound disconnection in the charitable sector. Uh, and amplifying on that finding was an um, observation that, in fact, the nonprofit community is becoming more specialized, more fragmented. There are a lot more nonprofit organizations by far than there were when the independent sector was created <clears throat> by John Gardner. And as a consequence, there is of greater specialization, more focus on very specific outcomes. And I would say, and I'll talk more about this, that, that's reinforced by donors who are increasingly looking for very specific outcomes. That it has led to fragmentation, <clears throat> and even in some cases, polarization. Um, and, and yet at the same time, one of the findings was that the, the sort of lines, if you will, the boundaries that have traditionally characterized different sectors, the for-profit sector, the, the, the government sector, the not-for-profit sector, they're beginning to blur. And particularly in California and other states, we're seeing the emergence of social benefit corporations, which you, it's hard to define. Are they, they're not, they're not a not-for-profit organization, but they're very oriented towards social good. So while the lines are blurring, which calls for even more connection across boundaries, uh, Modern Institute found, in fact, there is more specialization and more fragmentation, more polarization, more silos. As a consequence, a third finding was that the sector's approach to solving problems reflects this fragmented state. John Gardner um, said when he, when he formed Independent Sector that he urged the development of networks of responsibility. This is 1985, Networks of Responsibility. And yet one of the findings from Monitor Institute was that in fact there's greater orientation to sort of going it alone as they, as they defined it in problem solving. <clears throat> An insufficient sense of ownership of major problems. Uh, and then a final finding, which I'd have to say in many respects is reflected in this room as I look at you, the sector does not reflect the changing demographics of American society. 
So the not-for-profit community, which is oriented to driving social change, is in fact not necessarily representative of those dimensions of society that really are uh, in need of social change. So here was their takeaway. Monitor Institute's takeaway. Organizations that are agile, perhaps leaner in the past, and continuously leveraging their value by working in new forms of partnership with others, both in and outside the sector, are more likely to thrive. So I'm sure that all of you would concur that the concept of engagement across organizational boundaries and across sectors um, is laudable and desirable. How many of you would say that you individually or the organizations you're working with are doing that really well? Oh, good. <laughs> There's at least some that feel that way. And I, look, I suspect that many of you are in some fashion kind of looking beyond your own boundaries. As Eric said, I, I, I have been challenged by this uh, this necessity for a long time in my career. I have not mastered it. I've made many mistakes. Um, but I have come to learn some, let's say, fundamental principles. And th this is not a how-to list. So if you adopt this, then you're going to be one of the most effective networkers there is. It's not that easy. It's, this is really hard. And you're dealing not only with challenges in your own organization, but you're dealing with challenges with multiple organizations and multiple people in multiple sectors. Let me start by um, just kind of putting a, a rhetorical question out there, although I'd be interested in hearing what you have to say. Why, why did you, so many of you have been doing this for a very long time, as I have. I've been doing, I've been in the not-for-profit sector for 40 years. Why did you devote your career to working in the not-for-profit sector? It's not the money. Why? Just get cause, -driven. cause driven. Perfect. What else? Change. change? To, see change. to see change. Excellent. Values. values. Is that is that what values? Your personal values. To promote, to promote justice. All right. So you have some belief in whatever field you're in. You're passionate. You have a real devotion to your mission. I have found um, that some of those drivers for my own inspiration and aspiration in the not-for-profit community have actually gotten in my way. Um, why? What, 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 your comments, and, I, and they echo very much what I would have sort of, what, what I have often said. What does that reveal about us? Um, we really believe, we are passionate, we're ardent about the causes that we're devoted to and the organizations that we have uh, committed our time and energy and our heart and soul to. So we're true believers. We want to be problem solvers. We want to see change. We probably, consciously or unconsciously, feel that somehow we've sacrificed, or at least what we're doing is, is not getting the kind of compensation that we might have if we went into the for-profit sector. 
Um, we feel kind of noble. We're proud, right, when people ask us what we do, explain the organization we're involved with. We feel very proud about that. Maybe we're a little smug. Maybe we're too devoted to our organizations and our mission and our cause. So let me share some lessons I've learned and have tried to be mindful about those kinds of um, elements of self-awareness, if you will. I, I spent um, close to 30 years with the Nature Conservancy. I started when that organization had only 200 people, and after I left as president, it had 4,500 people. We were working in 30 countries, <clears throat> and we had, as Eric said, a budget of close to a billion dollars every year. Um, and I was immensely proud of that. I was an ardent advocate and missionary on the part of the Nature Conservancy. But I began to realize that my devotion to the mission in some ways, particularly the mission of my organization, which I can recite today, my devotion to that mission was narrowing how I thought about we could actually drive social change, and particularly my devotion to my organization. The mission of the Nature Conservancy, which has changed since I left, was when I was there to preserve the plants, animals, and natural communities that represent the diversity of life on Earth by protecting the lands and waters they need to survive. I helped shape that mission. I believed in it with such conviction that um, I was blind to the fact that, A, we actually weren't succeeding with our mission. We're having lots of successes. Nature Conservancy, as you probably, many of you know, tries to secure protected areas for um, representative natural communities and rare and endangered species. So we were having successes, but globally, we were seeing the decline of uh, species overall, extinction rates up, and significant reductions in major natural habitat types like grasslands and uh, arid, um, dry, arid, non-forested communities. So, we weren't succeeding with our mission, and with such a precisely defined mission, we're kind of ignoring the human dimension. So when I worked with uh, organizations outside the United States, and I would share that mission, I'd talk about we need to preserve land and water, we've got to save it, we have to set it aside, in many countries, that sounded very arrogant and off-putting and, in, and in some respects confiscatory because there are people living in those landscapes. So I, I, I came into being president of the Nature Conservancy and yeah, we really ought to create a network among the conservation organizations. And that was challenging enough. In fact, I must say not entirely successful. I'll talk more about that in a minute. But what I realized is we had to break out of our own community and start working with the human development community, at the very least, public health sector. Um, and I found, too, that I tended to proselytize with those communities. So the first time we met with a group of um, development organizations, CARE and Oxfam, I was talking about, well, you know, we, we, we get it. We finally realized that there are ecosystem services and natural capital that benefit people. And they'd never heard of those terms. And those terms were very much framed in my orientation to my mission and my organization. 
You'll hear more from Jane Skillern on this. She's been a real advocate for the notion of getting out of your own mission and actually getting out of your, your, your organization's mission, but even think, what is the larger cause? What is the larger thing I want to see happen? Second thing that I, uh, I, I realized is part of my motivation, self-confessional, was to be admired. I wanted people to admire what I was doing at the Nature Conservancy, and that's fine. But I, I got to the point where I really wanted people to think, whoa, Steve McCormick, God, he's so great. You know, he's like, his ideas are like unbelievable. He's the guy who's saving the world. Um, and you know, that, that's what I said. There's a, a conceit can come from our devotion to our cause. We really want to be admired. We're noble. We're doing the right thing. We've kind of given up making a lot of money to do this great thing. You have to be willing to not just give up control, but give up glory. I once asked one of my colleagues in the, in the conservation community, which I will have to tell you is the most competitive sector I've had experience with. Very fragmented. And, um, and, and not working in the networking way I, I would really like to see. I asked one of my colleagues once, suppose you could kind of make a pact with, I don't know, some divine being. And you believe in the cause um, but then that pact, you could be assured by that divine being that there would be success in the cause. But that success would be attributed to someone else. In fact, someone else who's a CEO at one of the other big non-government uh, uh, NGOs, who frankly you're always in competition with. So would you make that pact? I mean, you could go to your grave knowing you made the pact that saved biological diversity and you got no credit for it. In fact, your colleague did, who you've always kind of like dismissed. <laughs> would you make that pact? You know, I got a lot of like, well, that would never happen. And you know, was, <laughs> who's the divine being that you would do that with? I, I, and then he said, no, you know, no, I, no, I wouldn't do that. So we are, we, we, we got to get out of our own desire to kind of be the one that had the idea. And not only do we have to give up, you know, some element of control, we have to be willing to follow. I tried to pull together a group of, a very diverse group of stakeholders in a hugely complex land use issue in Southern California back in the late 80s that arose from the listing of an obscure lizard called the Coachella Valley fringe toad lizard. I went to the Nature Conservancy saying I'm going to save, you know, otters and grizzly bears, and I ended up saving things like the Coachella Valley fringe toad lizard because it was in the path of intense development uh, of Palm Springs and some of the other communities down there. And I got into something that I was really inexperienced with. It was comprehensive land use planning, and I thought, well, let's bring stakeholders together. So we had people from the, uh, the land development business. We had people from the nine cities and the county of Riverside. We had people from the Native American communities. We had conservationists. Uh, we had people who kind of represented the um, 
underprivileged communities down there, which even now were quite a few. <laughs> and so I brought them together, and I said, okay, we're, you know, we can't do this alone, you know, we're all having to work together. And then I started saying, okay, what you, your group can do is this, and then you know, your group can play this role, and I'm thinking, this is, they're gonna love this, you know, I've got it all figured out. And we're working partnership, and we can get it done. And some, somebody raised their hand and said, that sounds like dictatorship. I mean, you're telling us what we're gonna do, you haven't even asked us what we think we should do. And I realized that I, I had gone into that with personal conviction that I, we, I had it figured out, and I knew what roles they could play. And I actually, initially, I was kind of like annoyed. Well, I, well how, you know, I, I think I've got this right. You have to give up control. And in some cases, you have to be willing to do some things that you, at, at the start of your engagement, might have found not very appealing. You need to think in terms of being a, a, problem, a, a solution seeker, not a problem solver. And I, that, was, that may seem like kind of a subtle distinction, but I had to learn that for myself. I, I wanted to solve a problem. And I wanted to be the one, you know, it came up with the idea and then mobilize people. But solution seeker has to engage with a wide variety of points of view and opinions and backgrounds and experiences and styles, et cetera. Another thing I learned is that it is essential if you're working in any kind of coalition to have alignment, clarity and alignment on a desired end state. And that doesn't mean that everyone has to have the same motivation or even the same outcomes that they want. They don't have to share them, but they have to share the desired state. So back to that example in Southern California. The developers were engaged, the land developers were engaged because they, they had been stopped further development because the listing of this lizard. <laughs> we, I went to a number of hearings in the Coachella Valley when the listing was proposed, and nobody could remember, you know, the Coachella Valley, for instance, lizard. So time after time, speakers would get up and say, I, I, I can't believe this goddamn lizard is stopping development. And eventually, the, the lead from the Fish and Wildlife Service said, well, maybe we get this out and rename it the goddamn lizard. Um, <laughs> but the developers did not care about the goddamn lizard. I mean, they would tell you, you know, we understand. But what they did understand that the law was preventing them from doing development, and they needed to get entitlements, and they wanted certainty and speed. The environmentalists wanted to save the Coachella Valley fringe toad lizard, and they wanted sufficient acreage and configuration of habitats that would maintain that species over time. Local communities wanted, they wanted to have robust economies. They also recognized their responsibility under the Endangered Species Act, and so on. Everyone coming to that initial meeting had if you ask them a different desired goal. But we could define a desired end state, if you will. And that end state was where we would have the federal government provide a swift process for developers to get their permits. In order to do that, they would have to pay a mitigation fee. That fee would go to securing a pre-designed set of protected areas. And the county then, actually took advantage of it as kind of a promotion for tourism. Being able to recognize the 
desired outcomes and then defining a desired end state that would satisfy those outcomes. And obviously, each participating entity had to give a little. That was exceedingly important. So clarity on the desired end state. In, in that regard, um, it's really important, too, I found, to have some early wins. A, a, the reason for working in partnership, collaboration, networking, is because the problems we're addressing are incredibly complicated. Multiple stakeholders, high stakes, and long-term, typically. The process to address those is nonlinear, and you have to be very adaptive. It's really important to get some early wins. And, and, and just think about what those could be. They could be relatively small, but to keep that group working as a group, there has to be a feeling like we're making progress. And in that regard, it's really important, and I wouldn't overdo this, but it's important to identify what are the kind of milestones along the way so we can continue to feel like we're making progress. And you can change those, but you need to be aiming at something that provides a sense of progress and momentum. Uh, another thing that I learned is deciding how, this seems so obvious, decide how you want to be organized. And I mean that like literally. There has been the emergence of the concept of a backbone organization. There are secretariats, there are steering committees, there are any number of ways you want to do, you can do that. But there has to be some organization, there has to be something that binds that group together. What I have learned is if you just have a sequence of meetings one after another, you don't make progress. And then tied to that, and this is really important, um, get alignment on decision rights. That's really hard in your own organization. Uh, frankly, nonprofit organizations are very consensus-oriented. So even with your own organization, it takes a lot of time to get people on board. You start doing that with multiple entities, and if they're in the public sector as well as in the not-for-profit sector and sometimes in the private sector, each one of those organizations has its own decision-making process, and you can get completely stalled if you are depending on, uh, if you have to rely on the decision-making process of a multiple entity. Whatever you create as an organizing uh, approach, it has to have some decision-making capability, and you have to decide in that group who decides on what, who gets to provide input, who gets to review. That is really complicated, but in, unless that's sorted out at the very beginning, uh, you'll really struggle. Uh, a final thing, which is kind of the most fun, and this, I shouldn't say final. You can think of many other things. You will hear Jane Skillern talk uh, after me. She has some really terrific insights. Um, get the group to bond at the very beginning. Socialize the group. Go out together. Have dinner. Have drinks. And build that into your process so that there's informal time in some ways, that is kind of the magic ingredient. Uh, in my effort in Southern California, people came to that initial meeting very suspicious of not trusting other participants. And uh, it was a very tense initial meeting and a, and a lot of um, you just sort of subliminal, in some cases not so subliminal, hostility. 
Then we went and had dinner, and we did that several other times. <laughs> I could see these friendships being developed. Uh, and after a while, you hear somebody say, God, you know, she's really a lot nicer than I thought she would be. I'm not so bad. Um, and that group bonded. And after a while, there became kind of group cohesion. And I remember a time when we encountered what seemed like an insurmountable setback. And by that time, the group was so kind of self-committed to itself and to one another in the group, you could tell they did not want this to be the barrier that led to success. It was their commitment to one another. So they began to trust one another. Again, they accepted that there were differing motivations, but they could agree on a desired end state. And they kind of felt responsible to and accountable to one another. As I say, those are some shared lessons that I have had. As Eric said, I've been working recently with the state government to completely overhaul the Department of Parks and Recreation. <clears throat> and I'm kind of learning a whole new sector and challenges within the government sector in terms of engaging with others to get something done. There are thousands of, over 10,000 volunteers in the California State Parks. And there are dozens of organizations that are ready to help and they do it basically at no cost to the state. And the state just, just has a feeling like we can do this ourselves even though they can't. It's, the, it, it's astonishing to me. So we're trying to start small. We're trying to create some pilot projects and we could create what we call co-management of some parks and begin to see again how the, the people who have had these tense relationships can actually work as allies and friends towards something that is much greater than any their individual organizations, certainly the state alone can do. So that's, let to say, that's a set of um, some lessons learned from um, a long career at trying to build networks and alliances. Um, I'll say at the end, as I said at the end, it is incredibly hard. Do not get discouraged. You, you just have to keep working at it. And you'll come to a session like this and, oh, wow, I mean, it seems like all we heard was success stories that really worked. Behind every success story were a whole bunch of challenges and failures and setbacks. Um, so, get out of your own way. This is overused quote from Gandhi, but if you want change, you must be the change. You must start thinking about, okay, what, what can I do differently? So I would encourage you, as you leave this, um, as you leave this event, you go back to your jobs, start thinking, what, what could I do differently to make change? Um, I do believe that we, I, I, I'm convinced, that we will not make progress on meaningful social change unless there is cohesion across boundaries. No organization can move the needle on any of these big issues. No funder can do it. I think that the foundations have gone a little too far in wanting to be strategic and looking for specific outcomes. That reinforces the fragmentation, I'm afraid. One thing I would encourage you to do who work in nonprofit organizations is approach foundations as a collective. Foundations say they want to see more collaboration. I remember when I was in the Nature Conservancy and I was approaching big foundations and I would often hear, why don't you work more closely with the World Wildlife Fund or Conservation International or Wildlife Conservation Society? And I, oh, you don't want to 
push back on a donor, but I couldn't help but say, why don't you funders work more together? You all have your own theory of change, your own measures, your own ways of working with the organizations you support. So push back on your funders. Now, having said all that, I, I, I can't help but end with um, a couple of quotes. One, a little bit um, irreverent, uh, the other more serious. The first one is, so I've told you all this about how we need to work together and collaborative, put the glory aside. G.K. Chesterton, uh, <laughs> I love this quote, um, said, in, I've searched all the worlds and all, all, in all the world and all the cities and found no monuments to committees. <laughs> so, so I'd like you to think about, okay, we're gonna have the first monument to a committee, to a collaboration. And so my last quote, quote is to um, recite again John, uh, uh, John Gardner, who said this 30 years ago. If you figure out the secret of acting together despite real differences in views and values, you might teach the battered and fragment world a big lesson. So go teach the world a lesson. Thank you. I would be happy to answer any questions or get any of your comments. There are, there are microphones um, around the room. Yes. Uh, right. Good morning. Thank you. Um, I'm just interested in your question about Steve about um, gratefully accept the fact that one of your colleagues had solved your uh, mission and you said no. The three women at my table all said yes, we would. And so I was wondering about, is there a gender issue in that? I'm, I, I'm, could, could you repeat that? Sorry, sorry, am I not speaking English? Sorry. <laughs> so um, your, you answered your question that no, you wouldn't accept if a colleague had um, solved your mission. The three women at my table all said, yes, we would. So I'm wondering, is there a gender issue in that? <laughs> you know, that, that, that's a, probably. <laughs> and, and, and to be clear, I wasn't the one who said, <laughs> I, I would make the, I, I, I wouldn't have asked that question unless I couldn't have, I wouldn't ask my colleague that question. I would definitely do that. There's a, there's a line in, um, what's that, that play, oh, Man for All Seasons, about Sir Thomas More. <clears throat> and there's a young man who he is mentoring, Richard Rich, Richie Rich. And, and he wants to become well-known. He, he wants to have a high-ranking position. <clears throat> and he's asking for Sir Thomas More's help. And Thomas More says, you're not that's not your skill, that's not what you're good at. You're good at teaching, you should be a teacher, you'd be a great teacher. And Richie Rich says, but who would know? And Sir Thomas More says, you would know, and your family would know, and your God would know. Richie Rich ended up betraying Sir Thomas More <laughs> uh, later on, but I thought that was a marvelous response. You would know. 
Um, is it a gender? Yeah, probably so. In some, yeah, I, yeah, probably so. Although, you know, it's funny. Lead, lead, look, there are motivations that people have to become leaders, irrespective of gender. That sometimes gets in the way. Was there a hand up? Oh, yes. Which is probably about mechanics, and I'm wondering how the language you have used in building these types of relationships has evolved. So, for instance, in our work, we ban the word help. We never use the word help. We talk about accompanying, challenging, supporting, changing each other, but we never use the word help because it has an inherent status anxiety that goes with it. So I'm wondering how your vocabulary has changed and what words you found to be most effective. That's a really, uh, really good comment. And I do have a great belief in the, the um, importance of words um, and language and terms. As I said, with the mission I was devoted to and my own values, the terms of preserve, save, set aside, they really, really were powerfully influential and important to me. And I realized how those terms were heard. Um, and so, this may seem awfully subtle, but I talked about conserving more than saving, because you can use things that are conserved. Saving seems like you're kind of taking it away. There are other, um, that I, and I like your notion about help. It sounds kind of condescending. And I'll tell you from my experience, both being a, f a funded entity as well as being a funder. Um, this may offend my former colleagues in the foundation community. I don't like terms that um, are in common use now. I, I don't like the term grantee. It's not, it sounds so condescending. And then, and then you become our grantee. Um, I, when I was at the foundation, the Moore Foundation, I never used the word grantee. I talked about the organizations that we support. Um, I don't like the term grant. Um, it just, it just it sounds very transactional and like a contract. I don't like the term program officer. It sounds like a cop. <laughs> I don't like the term foundation. It sounds like a slab of cement stuck in the ground. Um, and so I, you know, I really like the notion of change the language, and you can sometimes then change how people think about things. For the record, <laughs> For the record I don't mind being named a grantee. Just saying. <laughs> anyway, I agree with all that you've said. It's all very helpful, and it resonates. I think the most challenging portion of what you said is around defining the structure for the yeah. decision. Yeah. And I wondered if you had any pointers towards that, because we are used to being collegial, but then do you sit down and say, okay, this is great, we're gonna have a really nice social time and I'm gonna make the decision. Yeah. That's not the yeah. network, so how do you do it? What, what do you do? What are the words that you use to say, here's the structure for getting to that decision on a networked relationship? <clears throat> um, let me say that there are now, some great um, skilled guides that you can turn to. The Monitor Institute is really good on working with organizations <clears throat> to build um, on a, what's it called, aligned, what do you call it? it al aligned action. Um, 
So again, in this respect, the terminology is probably not terribly important because you can get hung up on what, well, like, what's the difference between aligned action and a backbone organization? Um, so I would encourage you to turn to the kind of skilled advisors that are out there because they have been through this and they have developed methodologies. Um, I, I would also say, you know, sort of get first principles squared away before you think about how you're going to organize. So first principles about, you know, like, what is our desired end state? And um, how, how, how much of my own organization's time and resources am I willing to put into this? Um, it gets just some of those things squared away. Having a skilled, independent third party help manage that coalition um, is invaluable. And I, I, I eventually, I did turn to a consultant <clears throat> in the Coachella Valley um, because, I, you know, I, f frankly, I did come into that with an agenda. Um, and my agenda was one of many agendas. And so I had to sort of step out of being the leader. Um, the group has to lead itself, but can have a guide to get you there. And there are different ways of organizing that have been tried and tested and in some ways, um, you know, experiment with and lessons learned from those. So I would encourage you to seek out that kind of help. Yes. Thank you for your insights on cross-boundary collaboration. John Gardner is a hero of mine. I think he would have uh, liked a lot of the things you had to say today. A question. So uh, you talked about the desired end state and how important it is to get alignment around a desired end state. Sometimes in collaborations, they get too big. They get unwieldy. Yeah. And it's really difficult to kind of drive forward with that kind of unwieldiness. Have you ever in your experience um, been involved in a collaboration where it was, it was needed to winnow down the number of players in order to get to the desired end state? And can you tell that story if you have? Yeah, I, <clears throat> that's a really good point. I would say in every collaboration, there has to be some small group that can, um, can drive the agenda. Um, did have in, uh, another similar land use situation to the one I described. Um, we, we created a, um, I can't remember what we called it. Uh, there was a larger group that we brought together twice a year. And we because, frankly, there were a lot of people who really wanted to be involved in the process, and you know, it's too cumbersome. You can't have too many people in a, if you're going to really drive that process. And again, it gets to, okay, how are you going to make decisions? <clears throat> but we brought that group together for a whole day session twice a year, and it wasn't just simply reporting out, but it was, we did it like workshops. So we'd say, okay, here's some things we're stuck on right now. We'd really like your input on that. Um, we had... Um, frankly, a need for some regulatory help. And so we brought in, uh, we brought in staff who worked for key committees, both in the state and at the national government. And so they knew they were part of this, and they, they kept an eye on it that way. Um, but I, I, I couldn't agree more. You need to keep your working group small. I mean, another thing that happens is people's schedules make it impossible to get together. Um, you know, like, if you can't get everybody, then do you have, that's another thing you need to decide. Does everybody need to be at every meeting? Uh, that's part of your decision rights thing. But I, I agree, it needs to be 
needs to be kept small. Maybe one, uh, one or two more questions. Yes. Yes, thank you. I was very interested in your comment about the nonprofits co-managing the state parks with state government. And I wonder how you deal with issues of scale and capacity. Um, because many times the nonprofits you referenced, 10 or fewer employees, are very small and yet doing very good work and very on the ground work. So how do you build this coalition that takes into account the rather radical differences of capacity that exist between the partners and get the proper alignment to get the desired outcome? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I will say, uh, with the work we're doing with state parks, <clears throat> many of these so-called support organizations, or in some cases are called cooperating associations, they are um, they're, they're site-specific, you know, like the, the Friends of Castle Rock State Park. Um, so they may have only 10 people, sometimes fewer, but there's people who really know that place and the community that they work in. Mm -hmm. um, and, th and they, they actually know it a lot better than, than most of the state employees because they've been in that community. The, the state tends to rotate people through these parks. Um, but it, it maybe gets to the larger point that um, in, in forming any kind of alliance, just to use that as a loose term, there will be organizations of varying sizes and, and coming from very different kinds of um, of enterprise and public agencies, they, they, they are subject to much different kinds of influences and pressures um, and incentives and disincentives than nonprofit organizations and certainly people who work in the private sector. Um, one of the things we've had, God, it's been a real challenge with the state. They're so sad. You know, people who work in state government. Um, so in the Department of Parks and Recreation, the director of the department, this is a appointed by the governor, budget of $500 million, 3,000 employees, incredibly political, more than you would think. And she gets paid $150,000 a year. Um, so, you, you know, she's top paid in the department. You take it down, somebody who's out in the field is getting, they get poorly paid. And there's no annual merit increase. So there's no incentive whatsoever, whatsoever, to, to think out of the box, to do something different. In fact, there's all kinds of pressures not to. This is really important to think of when you're, if you're working with organizations in the public sector. There are lots of incentives to not do anything bad. If something wrong happens, and let's say it was a one out of a thousand uh, possibilities, or more, Inevitably, and if it's high-profile, bad thing, um, there'll be you know some sanctimonious legislature who legislators I'll never allow that to happen again, and the governor's office will come down on them. Make sure don't let that happen. There are state audit departments that are always looking at everything. Well, the best way to make sure nothing bad happens is don't do anything, <laughs> especially if you're not sure. And that can be, I remember working with these government agencies being so frustrated. They wouldn't make a decision. They wouldn't do anything that wasn't kind of a little bit out of the box. And I've got a much better appreciation for, for, for that now. Um, so not only are you dealing with organizations of varying size, but you're dealing with organizations that have very different kinds of influences, external and internal, that, they, that, they, that, that drive them. And you just need to really be mindful of that. One, one last question, yes. Hi, I'm Karen McCormack from the Kilgore's Project. Um, I have kind of two broader questions, or two-part broader question. Um, 
One, when you talk about broadening your mission, um, how do you guard on the other side of you know, the idea of mission creep, that you're doing all things for all people? Um, and two, what are ways you've gotten your, your donors or your base excited about this idea of collaboration and networking? Yeah, really good question on mission creep. Um, I think, you know, I, I do believe that missions for organizations should be very aspirational, but they should be clear um, enough so that they are a touchstone in, in how you go about your work. Because it is awfully easy to move into things that are off mission. Um, so I think that's important. The point really is don't be just, be, be devoted to your mission, but you're gonna have to kind of go out of your mission in order to accomplish your mission sometimes. And we didn't change the mission of the Nature Conservancy. It changed later, and I think properly so. But I remember telling folks within the Nature Conservancy, we're true to our mission, but look at all the indicators on our mission, and <laughs> we're not succeeding. We're gonna have to sort of embrace organizations with other missions, not change our own mission. Um, how to get donors and, um, Look, donors are more and more professing their eagerness to see collaboration. I don't think their practices are yet creating the incentives uh, sufficiently, um, but donors really do want to see m more partnering, I'll typically put it that way. Um, I would encourage you, and, and often what foundations will do then is they'll go to the organization and say, we really want to see a joint proposal from you and this other organization. And, I have to confess, in my experience, what we would do with the other organization is like bolt together a couple of things that we were doing and we'd call it a joint proposal. Um, I think kind of build your, uh, your network and then approach the funders from the network. Another thing that is difficult with these alliances is, is, is the resources. So, I've been involved in partnerships where we said, okay, each of us will bring uh, initial money to the table, and then each of us will raise money. And that doesn't work very well, because you, sometimes you're going to the same potential donor to ask for the same, essentially the same thing. So try to approach the donors as, as your partnership or in your network. Thank you very much. I've really enjoyed this, and I hope you all have a really great session.